and Apex Lab Podcast. Hey there, welcome to the Level Up Engineering Podcast, where we speak to the most experienced technology leaders from around the world. So stay with us to learn actionable management insights to take your engineering team to the next level. This show is powered by Apex Lab, a team of experts in end-to-end digital product development. ApexLab.io Hello there, everyone. I am Carolina Toth, and this is the Level Up Engineering Podcast. It is my pleasure to talk with accomplished technology leaders every other week. And today I have another really great cast, Ritendra Datta here with me. He is Director of Engineering at Facebook currently, but before that, he was at Google for 10 years. So he has quite a lot of experience to share with us. So before we get to today's topic, I would like to ask you to tell us a bit about you, who you are and what your passions are, so we can get to know you a little more. Yep. My name is Ritendra, as you, as you said. I am a Director of Engineering at Facebook now called Meta, but I specifically work on the Facebook app. I run video recommendations for the company, specifically for Facebook and Facebook Watch. And I love my job. I love engineering. I love the way we build scalable systems, and I've done that all my career. And outside of work, I love making films. So that's my other hobby outside of work. They're my two children, my work and my filmmaking passion. I'm passionate about both, but there's plenty of engineering and plenty of art on both sides. Thank you for sharing that. Before our conversation, you said I am a director of engineering and of film, and I really love that. So I just wanted to share that with our, with our listeners. And before we go any further, we should point out that you are not a spokesperson for either company you have ever worked for. You are here as an individual who has quite a bit of experience. So thank you for joining us today. Of course. Yeah. I mean, this is all my my personal opinion from my combined experience working at these places. I, I mean, obviously, I'm not a spokesman for the company in any of what I say now. Thank you. So today we have a very exciting topic. If we have regular listeners here, I usually speak for breaking up the silos and uh, making sure that communication flows freely and people can collaborate. And today we will talk about managing cross-functional teams and achieving cross-functional collaboration. And with that said, let's just look into what you are doing or what you have done. How do teams function in your perspective? Yep. So in general, like I have primarily led teams of engineers and research scientists. Research scientists, essentially, they, they act like engineers in the companies I have worked at, except that sometimes they have a PhD or, I mean, that sort of makes the biggest difference between uh, an engineer and a research scientist. Essentially, they're building products for the companies or they're, they're writing algorithms, they're building systems and so on. And everyone else that surrounds us is cross-functional partner in some sense. We have slightly different nomenclature in these companies, but generally one acronym I like to use is XFN, like XFN cross-functional XFN partners. These include product managers. They tend to be the closest partners to us, product managers and product management directors and VPs and so on. Then there is data scientists. And again, the definition of a data scientist varies greatly in the industry, I feel. 
in some companies, data scientists are cross-functional partners that are actually building machine learning models and so on. In in the companies I worked at, they're they're more focused on giving insights from data to help engineers build the right things. Then there is data engineers that actually build pipelines and things like to make the data scientists and the engineers effective with data-based work. For product design, we have product designers or UI or UX designers. We have user experience researchers who are actually talking to real people to figure out, you know, what should we build and which kind of product makes sense to build. This is all software oriented, of course, in a more general engineering sense. Some of these apply, some don't, but some of these are specific to software design and software development. And then we also have product marketing managers who are sort of the liaison between the products that engineers and product managers build and the large clients that we have. So those are pretty much the big ones. There are a few other specialized areas. For example, there are chiefs of staff that bring lots of different organizations closer together by representing, a, a let's say, a, an organization leader like a VP. They bind people together. There are, of course, administrative assistants who are super helpful. They make sure that the company is running well. But the big ones are really the sort of the product managers, the data scientists, the UX designers, and the UX researchers. Those are the big ones for the kind of work I've done in my career. And so what does this collaboration kind of look like? How should we picture engineers working together with UX researchers or product managers? Usually there's a hierarchy of engineering managers and engineering leaders all the way up to VPs and CXOs and so on. The reporting structure affects how these teams collaborate with each other to some extent. In some cases, you have a product area lead that would all these different XFN leaders would roll up to, and then there's a, that's a decision maker. But within these teams, specifically what happens is engineers and engineering leaders have a counterpart typically, that, that is well clearly identified, right? I'm an engineering manager running a particular part of the company. I have a product manager counterpart. They don't may or may not have any reports. Typically, they are a much smaller set of people that really help develop the product and, and remove roadblocks in order to develop the right product. Product managers often partner with engineering managers as a, a sort of a team. Sometimes there are senior ICs who are not managers but are more like tech leads that partner. So that's a, that's a triad of leaders that are often some of the most critical set of people to make a product happen, right? So an engineering manager, a product manager, and a senior IC. So that sort of covers all the core things that need to happen. That triad often through the product manager interfaces the user experience designer interfaces the data scientists, interfaces the UX researcher. If you look at the life cycle of how a product is developed, there is probably an idea that came from somewhere and it could come from anywhere. In a bottom-up culture, it could come from an engineer, it could come from a, an IC level product manager, it could come from a data scientist, it could come from anywhere. Then the product manager's job is to sort of figure out what is the minimum viable product to build, write a PRD and sort of figure out what's the roadmap how much resources do we have? What are sort of considerations like privacy and security in what we build? And then they bring those ideas to the engineering team, typically, 
in certain cases, all this is happening all at the same time. There are three of these leads sitting together, figuring out what to build. In other cases, there's a bit of a, here's an idea, let's go and execute. I've seen it all. I mean, at some level, the leaders, their roles sort of blur. The lines blur between what they're expected to do. Sometimes a product manager might have a really good engineering idea, like, you know, I want to build this thing. Sometimes a an engineering manager has a strong product sense and then they start to contribute ideas. Sometimes an IC has a very strong passion toward building a product a certain way and then they bring it up. And in an ideal way, these lines are truly blurry. I actually am not a big fan of very strong boundaries between these XFN roles, but rather that it's a collaboration throughout and that people all feel included in all the key decisions that are made. One of the things I've seen people get frustrated with is when they're handed things to do. Hey, this is your roadmap. Go build this thing. People want to be included, especially those with a passion for sort of building products. No matter what their title is, they want to be included as part of this, including user experience designers. At both my companies, Facebook and Google, this has been a recurrent culture. We tend to hire very smart people, well-rounded folks who don't just limit their skills to one thing unless they're in a super specialization. Typically, they're well-rounded leaders. So they'll do 80% of what they're assigned and the remaining 20% would be sort of a little smattering of things contributing to the other XFN roles. It's a scatterbrain picture of a bunch of smart people getting together. They all have titles. The titles are blurry. They all love to talk to each other. They have good ideas. And they don't want to be stymied. They don't want to be restricted in what they can or cannot do. They don't want to be left out of important conversations, especially toward the early phase of, of a product development cycle. And in this sense, you are painting a really exciting picture. I'm a cognitive scientist. So in my studies, I, I always studied a bunch of different areas of study. And I can feel the passion for looking into different aspects of a product. In these kinds of situations, how do you prioritize? Is it a decision by one single person or is it a decision as a group of leaders? What is the eventual roadmap? Who or how do you decide? Yeah, that's a great question. So one of the patterns I've seen commonly in these companies is there's quite a bit of bottom-up planning and decision-making, but then that plan and the roadmap is presented to a senior leader for approval, for general like support, right? So it's mm -hmm. it's like a, the best of both was, I think we are probably past a period in time when, you know, a leader would just say, go build this. And then everyone down the food chain is just executing on that vision. And there's a precise description of what you want to build. And like everyone is just doing that. I feel like people have become far more independent they want to not be just execution machines. They want to be part of that initial dialogue and conversation. So generally, what I've seen is like an engineering leader, a product leader, a UX researcher. And by the way, since you mentioned CogSci, I, I know a lot of folks in UXR who have CogSci background. So that's, uh, that's uh, I've, I've seen them because they're studying how in their you know research, they're figuring out how people react to products and, and changes and so on. So these leaders, they come together. There's a document that's usually prepared and that's sort of longer or shorter depend on, depending on if you're at Google or at Facebook or at Amazon, right? And then that is presented in some forum to a leader 
and it sometimes germinates it's it's not always that you know the first version of it gets approved typically a, a vp or a or a senior director or c suite leader looks at the plan and says hey this looks good but let's change this this and this or sometimes they would be like oh, this doesn't make sense to me because of blah 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 because what we generally assume in good faith is that folks at the higher levels tend to have more wider information about markets about timing about budget about the ability to execute on something that's too grand given what else is happening in the company so then that approval is pretty important because you do want that sponsor in the company to buy into your idea that way it's like 90% of it is done bottoms up planning road mapping and then the, the remaining 10% is a dialogue between a senior leader and this team and so then hopefully there's a sort of middle band where everyone is just happy they execute i think in general companies where i've worked at are fairly agile and they do something they try something out it's a very testing oriented culture of software design which is you build something you try it out very quickly you start to get data about whether it's working or not you go back to the drawing board you make some changes you go back to the leader and say hey here's what we learned through our initial iteration we are thinking of this direction and then they'll be like okay let's do it and then they'll come back and present new data and so on i mean eventually hopefully we'll get to a good state but it's never done the nice thing about software yeah. is that it's never done and that's something exciting and sometimes it's frustrating for some people who like first for, for there to be a, like a sharp ending to project but i think a lot of folks in software also like the idea of never being done something is always being improved yeah so that's a positive way of saying that yeah or or optimized for sure right right so what i am gathering is that your definition of a cross functional team really roots in maybe cross functional people so you, you mentioned like they all have titles but maybe all the team members are really smart and they have opinions and ideas and so with really great communication skills they actually achieve collaboration and so really cross functionality comes from the people being so open minded yeah. and and i think there's one more thing about this there's there's a subtle point here and the reason my experience has been like this because i've always worked on consumer software there are many other kinds of software and hardware and other kinds of engineering where this doesn't apply right so what that means is let's say you're using instagram reels you're sort of one of the engineers or one of the product managers or one of the ux researchers working on instagram reels or or you know tiktok or whatever right you're most likely a consumer so because you're a consumer of the product you're developing that's why it's more natural for you to have an opinion about it because you're using it you're hearing your friends and family talk about it now if you're in enterprise software salesforce or something right you know you're aws or you know you're not really likely to be a consumer of that software and so you're much more reliant on the specialization of that xfn partner so it it's possible that it's more siloed and more clear boundaries exist in certain kinds of engineering especially with consumer large scale engineering products that people themselves use regardless of their function people tend to have more <laughs> of an xfn nature because they they always have an opinion hey i hate this user experience everyone has an opinion on user experience recommendations like i work on recommendations right everyone is like i hear so much about people talking about oh i don't like the recommendations well i run that team so obviously i take it personally but <laughs> i get that opinion from every single person there's nobody who won't have an opinion about how good their recommendations are 
for videos or news articles or whatever it is that we're building. I love the recommendations on Instagram. There is like this little place where you can just discover and it is always so vastly different that I am like, okay, give me something. It's like a slot machine. I love it. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Let's switch gears a little bit and see if you maybe have a story for us here about scaling these really high achieving teams and making them bigger. How do you achieve great inclusivity within these teams when when they are already hopefully working so well together? How do you scale them? How do you make them bigger and better? Yeah. One of the philosophies I, I have about scaling teams is that there has to be work for us to scale. I mean, <laughs> you'll hear this. I don't know if you've heard this from others, but I hear this all the time. There's this notion. I mean, this is a cynical view of scaling, which is that some orgs and some en- some leaders scale their teams for the sake of empire building, right? So I don't know if you've heard that. I, I love that phrase because as I've, I've been an engineer for a long time and I became a manager and leader only you know, for the second half of my career, right? So for the first half, I struggled, through, I suffered as an engineer through sometimes noticing people scale, not for the right reasons. One way in which I think scaling makes sense is when the product itself is scaling, you have more problems to genuinely solve. And the number of engineers, number of product managers, number of managers, engineering managers, all of those cross-functional teams are too small for the number of requests coming in. Because as usage goes up, as the product scales, if it finds market fit, there will be more demand to do more things. Because typically, like large companies, they throw die and they, they try out five different things. Two of them succeed, three don't. Then they double. They want to double down. They want to move resources to the two that worked. I mean, that's kind of the uh, way in which you're sort of exploiting success, right? Okay, this this worked for me. So when that happens, you need to scale up the teams, all of these teams, not just the engineering teams, but I've been mostly experienced with scaling up engineering and research scientist type roles. I took, for example, at Facebook, when I joined, it was about 30 people. In the course of like two years, it became 120. We started with two managers. We ended with 13 managers and so on. So it's a hierarchy, as you can imagine. But somehow we've we've managed to scale up to the extent where even after we scaled up, no one really felt that it was an unnecessary growth. So we've we've grown when it had made sense. And that's kind of the first principle of growing. You grow when you really need to grow and you have all the right indications that a larger team is necessary for a better product that has already found market fit, market fit. Yeah, I love that. Thank you. I actually... I haven't had this conversation and I talk with engineers all day. But what you are saying, which I think is a great point, is that even when you know that scaling is coming, you should look behind the scenes and see, is this really necessary? And in most of my conversations, we just take it as a given and say, okay, talking about scaling, what should we do and how should we do it? So thank you for that point. I think the philosophy that this is driven by is this. It's better to have a smaller team that is required to aggressively prioritize than to have a larger team that is doing redundant work where there is infighting going on because multiple teams are operating on the same thing. I always prefer to have a leaner team 
that is making hard calls about what not to do than having multiple teams doing the same thing because that latter is really bad for engineering culture it really is a morale hit because people don't know okay so today i'm seeing it because i'm on the ground as an engineer i'm seeing from the point of view of an engineer engineers typically see this very clearly hey they're actually working on the same piece of code or whatever and they're building the same product and they're like hey is this necessary they see it before some of the leaders do sometimes so then they're like thinking eventually my bosses are going to see this and they're going to like combine these teams and my job will be at risk or whatever so that's that fear of being made redundant is real and every large company i'm not talking about small startups that are we know are operating very lean because they just can't afford to for very large companies it's difficult to track how big or small is big enough because those who make decisions about scaling up teams often act with incomplete information they're sort of making guesses okay we should like yeah maybe we should just double this because there's some math that makes sense double the team means double the productivity some simple things are used to sort of decide that because there's no other good way and then deal with the effects after effects of some of these bad scaling decisions later on which is not great what i said here comes out of experience <laughs> right so and you said that when you do need scaling then you need to make sure that everybody has more than enough work or that's how exactly. i took it exactly i i think so i think so it's not always the case but i feel like that's the right way to do it the idea is you scale up and it's like a room right you scale up and there's always enough work I, i've heard this a lot right there's always enough work to fill the room like it's like air you you eject air to a larger and larger room it will always fill up more air so there's a philosophy that is a little different where you say like yeah this is a successful product let's build a much larger team i'm sure we'll find work it sometimes <laughs> work it sometimes works and sometimes it doesn't work so that's why my personal choice is to be smaller and grow carefully but that's mm -hmm. that's not necessarily the right there's no right answer here you know in in a different world if you could run parallel worlds experiment my philosophy could fail in some cases and and might succeed in other cases but it's just what i choose to believe right and we are here to talk about your experience yep. so if the scaling is warranted have you made different stages as to what a good amount of team growth should be in your opinion or how do you manage the large amounts of work and growing the team simultaneously yeah that's a great question there is no magic bullet here it's it's always very complex every time it has been different right so i've never been part of a team that has not been in some critical path of something that has to be built regardless of who else who else we are hiring you know how we are scaling and so on so yes we are sort of always in this thing where we are in the boat the boat is moving and we are growing the boat while it's moving in a way that people are not falling off the you know the boardwalk or whatever and we are keeping everyone protected we are moving fast and the boat is growing in size and capacity right so it is kind of a very bad analogy i think but it's kind of what i just thought of in the moment scaling needs the right leaders and sometimes it's a great idea to hire really good leaders before you know how they will grow and i know that a lot of companies do this right so they'll hire some of the top leaders in the industry who have an experience scaling and then they will give them a charter of growing so i've done this before i've i've hired managers who i know 
have a history of scaling up, like hiring new people, training them up and building out a solid charter. I've also seen the other case and I feel like that the other one is a little bit harder where you hire a bunch of people, you have a bunch of direct reports and then you bring in leaders and managers and create. I think both work, but the first one brings that leader along in the scaling process because Mm -hmm. as you scale, they scale. So they are also learning to scale and you're also building a bench in the process, right? Because with as the orgs grow, it's important to have benches because now you have bigger and bigger. You're like, you're the captain of a larger ship. What if you fall sick or if, or if you have to go somewhere? Who's going to take over, right? So with a smaller ship, it can run in autopilot for a while. A larger organization cannot run in autopilot. They sort of start to collapse more with key leaders not being available. So scaling up, building the leaders... And it's, if, it, if possible, bringing the leaders early rather than late is a very tricky one, right? So one of the challenges with this is when we hire managers, for example, a lot of times the key question that the manager asks is, how many people am I going to manage? I'm guilty of the same, right? We all want to run bigger teams in, in some sense, right? No, I'm not saying all. I mean, I'm saying most, but I'm just using the euphemism of all. And then you tell them, I don't know yet. Exactly. But that's like, (laughs) and then some of the people will not be happy with that answer and will join a different team. Basically, I've found both kinds of leaders. Some leaders, they're happy to take on a a charter and grow it from scratch. Other leaders want to be given a big charter from day one. I've seen both. I would say the second one is more common where they want to run a larger team from day one. And I wouldn't say I'm any, I'm any different. I've, I've had that in my experience. And I've, I've gone back and forth of, of whether that is a good idea or not. But if possible, scaling is more effective if it's the former. But th- those <laughs> leaders are harder to find. These are people that really want to experience scaling up. Like, hey, give me 10 headcount. Give me two engineers. With those two engineers, I'm going to keep the current project that you, you mentioned, right? You know, there's a current project that's critical. They, they keep that running. They keep those people protected from the scaling process. They go and hire five other people. They build a charter around those seven people now. And then they, they hopefully, this is kind of the ideal thing where they scaled up, the team scaled up. None of the existing projects were slowed down because of that scaling process. And you d- repeat this over and over again, like in a hierarchy, you can imagine a manager of managers doing the same thing. A manager has one manager, they're sort of building some product. Now they're given a new charter. And they have nothing. They just have a bunch of headcount. So they first have to hire a manager. Then they have to hire a bunch of ICs. If they're lucky, it'll happen. The manager hiring will happen first. If they're not so lucky, they'll hire a bunch of engineers who will directly report to them. Then they will hire a manager to layer them over. And that's a better way to scale. One thing about scaling that I found different between Google and Facebook is at Facebook, managers are expected to do a lot in terms of taking care of engineers. So the manager role is more involved as I have experienced it. Of course, these are very large companies, different parts of these companies almost operate like different companies. But if you have at Google, I remember at some points of time, we had a manager with 30 reports. I've never seen that at at Facebook or Meta because, you know, it just doesn't happen because there's so much work to be done per, per engineer. So 
managers at facebook tend to have fewer direct reports than managers at google is my that's my pure anecdotal experience things could have changed in the 3 years that i've not been at google right. but yeah right what do you I, and i don't know if this is within scaling but it really speaks to me what you just said about bringing the managers along while you're scaling but my first instinct is to have my existing team and decide okay who is going to be a manager now if there are people in my existing team who really want to try themselves out and they have the skills that are that are necessary then do you think it's a good idea to have yeah. for example you have a bunch of ICs and five of them are happy and able to take the next big leap in their career and become engineering managers would you allow that or would you rather bring in experienced people who have done scaling before yeah that's a really good question and and the, the honest answer is that i've done both and i've seen both with roughly equal probability now when you're making one of your engineers become a manager they become their manager of their peers now that sometimes lands sometimes it feels like they lost an opportunity to build out in the companies i have worked at moving from an ic role to a manager role is not a promotion i know that in some industries i guess being a manager is a i i grew up in india where i think being a manager was a thing right you you, you really wanted to be being a manager like people would ask like hey you've been in the industry 20 years why are you not a manager that's not a question we ask in our industry here like people are like if you can maintain being a, an ic for the longest time that's great but it's a lateral move for the us based tech industry in, for in general right there could be exceptions so in that sense it shouldn't be something that affects your peer group because you they became their manager because it's not a promotion but some people still have that belief so that you know they lost on an opportunity to be a manager there are many reasons for that i think it almost feels like for different situations different solutions are better i'll give you an example when i want to build a team that is very technical and there is an engineer who's pretty senior and is a, has shown enough empathy toward their peer groups like the biggest thing about a manager an engineer becoming a manager is how much empathy do they have do they do they like the idea of not getting credit for work they do directly but rather you know giving credit to their team and being okay with that you know these are some of the some of the engineers who become managers tend to be superstar engineers so they get they're used to getting a lot of accolades and saying hey pats on the back hey you did an amazing job like now you become a manager suddenly are you able to like handle that transition if we have such a person on the team and there's a need for a very technical manager then it's a great idea to sort of grow a manager from within the team now if it so happens that there is no no one like that and it's a matter of scaling to a large extent like you're starting with a 15 person team it's very hard for someone who's becoming a manager for the first time to start with start off with a 15 person team so that's the mm -hmm. difference that i see like you know you really need to start off at scale see if you can hire someone who has done it before if you are a you know, four person five person pod and you just need a manager to like really be like a almost like a semi tech lead and semi manager kind of a role we, we have this designations in these companies called tlm tech lead managers so it's great to like have someone within the team take on that charter 
Thank you. I think that is clearing up some some fog. Let's circle back a little bit into the cross functionality that yep. we have yep. we have talked about. You mentioned data science and UX research and and software engineers. Have you had any experience when these really smart people were sort of a little siloed, and so you had to make sure that each team understands the value of the other team, uh, either existing teams or hiring new people for doing data science or for doing UX research and making sure that the existing software engineers were respectful or, or understanding what the what the value was of the cross functions. Yeah, 100%. And I've seen all of this. I've seen lack of respect for the other function in, for, for every pair of these. So... I've found engineers to say, like, what do these product managers do? Product managers to be like, what do these engineering managers do? Engineering managers like, what is that IC doing? ICs are like, what is the point of this UX research when we are just going to end up building what the product manager says we'll build? And then, of course, like, there are also the privacy. Sometimes we have these privacy XFN partners who are just focused on, like, making sure that product is complying with company-level privacy guidances. I mean, th these are new, newish roles that have come to existence in companies like uh, these that are under scrutiny for, for privacy-related uh, matters. So, yes, it's pervasive. It can be frustrating, especially if you're on the other side and you hear people say that. Maybe your follow-up question is, what, what have you done, right? So, right, right, yeah. right, right. Yeah, so, so I think... One of the most common questions, here are a couple. This is not even XFN, but it's like literally in the reporting chain. Sometimes an IC may not see what their skip level manager does. It's very common for them to say, hey, I can see what my manager, my manager is talking to me. What is my skip level manager doing? They have like three reports, three managers under them. What are they even, what, what is keeping them busy? That's common. Now, this is also very common for engineers to not see the value of product managers, of data scientists, because I think the bias is, engineers believe that they're building something and everyone that's not immediately building something can sometimes be seen as not as valuable, right? So this is a problem, right? It is unfortunately a bias in these organizations that this is actually a problem of inclusion in some sense, right? Mm -hmm. You don't see a, some somebody else's contribution and therefore you feel they're not necessary. But one thing I've noticed is that it's because they don't see the value they bring, it's a lack of information rather than passing judgment on all information available. So most of the times this happens because of the lack of respect, the lack of value comes from lack of knowledge rather than knowing everything and yet doing this. So if he spent a day, you know, here, here's, I'm going to jump to a solution that I've seen work, right? Sometimes we, we would have these empathy sessions, XFN empathy sessions, right? Like you would spend like four hours, block four hours in a day, have people representing all these cross functions, like maybe the key tech lead, IC, a manager, a product manager, a data scientist, a UX researcher, get together somewhere maybe outside of, you know, work, somewhere, you know, have a, like an offsite kind of a thing and spend the day talking to each other. What is frustrating about what you do? What do you think I do? Like explaining what you do, explaining what's frustrating about what you do and explaining why it's tough. Like, I've noticed that every time we have these XFN empathy sessions, everyone goes home feeling a little bit humbled by what the other people are doing and the struggles that other people have. Because a lot of times people are not thinking negatively unless they are experiencing some negative thing, right? For example, they are burnt out with too much work. 
and they see like hey we are working so hard what are these people doing well why you, aren't they working yeah, so hard yeah exactly but you go and go to these xf and empathy sessions and you realize everyone is working hard everyone is overworked everyone is struggling for different reasons and so suddenly like you it's it's often what i hear the most common thing i hear is it was an eye opening experience seeing what the uxr is struggling with their challenges the value they're bringing i i didn't realize for example i'll give an example of a uxr right so these companies that i've worked at are very data driven right everything is you know run ab tests and you know blindly almost like blindly pick the ones that's the standard way of doing things okay oh right. people like this more but uxr sometimes sometimes the data is just not capturing the emotions that we want out of people using our product right that's where uxrs come in and and you 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 see you see side a and side b you 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 see the data on side b is really good but uxr suggests that side a is unanimously preferred so like you you bring 10 people to the room and they tell you folks this is a terrible experience but i'm going to use it more and that's the metric you're measuring you're using it not for the right reasons so the metric looks good but the metric is not capturing the emotion you try to capture so the suddenly the engineers are like oh if we just blindly rely on data we would have made the wrong decision and people would have been frustrated wow. it happens all the time in 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 tech because sometimes there's a bit of arrogance over you know being technically precise because that's how so the the pipeline of hiring people is also through that channel right so we are biased toward very technical very mathematical people people who are like us yeah exactly and that just creates it reduces inclusion and creates more of the siloed behavior and i think engineers tend to be a little bit more guilty than other functions in in feeling that way because they they have certain pride of building things but i feel like we should do uh, an exercise in some company somewhere i don't know where where you just remove a lot of these functions for 6 months and see what happens and <laughs> <laughs> i i wonder which company would be would be okay with doing that back to the empathy session i really like this idea can you tell us a bit more about this is that something that you drive as director of engineering or is it something that is driven by the different functions or or is that something that people do on a regular basis and it's just a given that if you are on this team you are going to do you know an empathy session every yeah. other quarter yeah that's a great question i believe at least speaking for myself you know and and these things i i personally feel i've grown into being a servant leader um not like someone who's i'm not very comfortable giving top down instructions to people i generally feel like there are people in the room who know who are smarter than me who know be- better than me and the xfn group is collectively a better brain trust than me individually trying to dictate you know how to when to have empathy sessions or even to drive it so i've generally encouraged people to do it generally like the best way in which these get organized is some engineer or engineering manager within my org teams up with a product their product manager counterpart and says hey let's do this then they just check with me i barely do the job of like saying hey this makes sense or this doesn't make sense they're they're much better at really organizing it my job is to encourage those sessions and remind people to have those sessions more often especially when i see that there is no one is ill intended right that's the main right. thing right empathy sessions don't make sense if i sense mal intent or lack of good intention right so 
uh, when I see that it's all, it's just miscommunication or lack of empathy because you just don't know what the other people are struggling with or, or adding value to. One example is doing this like twice a year, like once every half might be a good idea. Just like that, even if you don't sense this problem, you're, you're 10 steps ahead of a problem that might arise. So almost like having right. a, an, a small XFN group meeting every six months might not be a bad idea. I'm being very prescriptive here, but... I think it's just something you almost have to like pick because, you know, today you don't have that problem. What if you have it tomorrow? How do you make sure people are aware of what each one is doing and what, what challenges they're facing? You mentioned that if you sense malintent, then you don't encourage this, uh, this empathy session. What do you do then? I think that becomes more of a performance conversation with them and their leaders to make sure mm -hmm. that they, like the biggest one, I mean, I'll tell you, I'm, I'm going to be brutally honest. There was an article like two days back of large companies driven by promotion culture. That mm -hmm. to me is the number one malintent. It's not really malintent, rather it's selfish intent, right? If some leaders are solely focused on their personal career growth, it doesn't always lead to the right decisions from their perspective. And that's that's the extent of malintent that I've seen. I haven't seen other extreme cases of malintent, but they're also like, for example, if this XFN partner is saying, hey, I want to do this, what they're not saying is I want to do this because it will help my career and not because it's right for the company or the product or the users. That I consider is, then when you go into this empathy session, it doesn't really help because their mind is still on that thing. Okay, what am I getting out of this? What am I getting out of this? Right. Okay. Okay. So just just so that I understand, I was going to say, they probably have all the information, but the reason for them to, for example, question what are those project managers doing or product owners or whoever, is that they want to advance their own career rather than making sure that the product development is going as smoothly as possible right. or the feature development or whatever. And th this happens more within a function, but among peers, because mm -hmm. you're less likely to be competing with an XFN partner for a promotion. But like if you have a peer manager in a, in a, 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 a close by org and you're both fighting for scope on some things, you can sometimes see this behavior. And so then that, I mean, I'm generalizing XFN to not just a PM and an engineer, but also a manager here and a manager, an engineering manager here and an engineering manager there. They're down the line, they want to like get more scope. Sometimes, you know, with the right intention, they have enough separation of scope and responsibility that they're not competing with each other for the wrong reasons. But they're, they're frustrated with each other because they don't think they're all adding enough value. In that case, it's actually a good thing to just sit down together. Hey, look, I have five engineers. I've been asked to do 10 engineers worth of work. What do you want me to do? That's the kind of situation where I do think empathy sessions can help. But if they're just fighting for more scope, empathy sessions don't really help because then they're just like, people will come with the same belief that they, I mean, they'll mm -hmm. go with the same belief that they came with. Awesome. So I'm circling back a little bit. You mentioned that largely you encourage empathy sessions in this part of the conversation rather than, you know, prescribing them to the people who you are working with. As director of engineering, though, what do you do to encourage or enhance the performance of cross-functional collaboration? What are some of the tips you can give to our listeners to encourage this kind of mindset? Yeah, the biggest one in my mind is inclusion. 
having the right leaders in everyday meetings to make sure they feel empowered and included and heard in key decision making forums is really important because people do feel left out when they are not invited to the right forums and it has multiple problems right first problem those who are not included become aware of those forums and meetings and so on and start to feel excluded they're like okay someone will reach out to me for this one specific thing but it's like very late in the game so even though i don't particularly like this part i'm just going to have to just do it right so that's number one that that doesn't help here it doesn't foster that culture of like a collaborative xfn group so number two that function might play an important role in what's going to happen down the line but they're not being heard because they're not in the room so they're not represented so it's bad not just for them but also for the company because as early as you can bring in, bring them in the better because they sometimes bring perspectives that a bunch of engineers like it's the problem of inclusion in everything right if you if you have a bunch of only men designing some product that both men and women are going to use are you really going to have an inclusive product it's not clear so i think this for the same reason xfn representation is essential from the very beginning so that the product design from the early funnel to the to the final product is is mindful of all the functions so that's one thing so the inclusion is to in my mind the biggest part because i think people have opinions people want to be part of that early conversation the second thing is resourcing sometimes people don't understand how much work a particular xfn needs to do to make something real because they again same thing they were not part of it and late stage now they're overworked no one likes to be overworked when they could have easily fixed that by being by planning early on okay we needed right. two uxrs ux researchers we needed three data scientists but now we have one of each and if only we were part of this conversation at the beginning we would have been i would just that would be my number one tip which is to like be inclusive of xfn in in key decision making points be respectful of all the opinions because they are probably seeing something that you're not seeing you don't let ego come in the way of doing the right thing when it comes to a team i love that thank you we can just call it today <laughs> i completely agree with you and you are getting to my last question i really think that this is a has been a really great conversation and people who are going to watch this conversation will go away or go home or go back to work with with some new ideas as to how to foster this collaboration but i'm sure there are some pitfalls that you have seen for example including too many people in a meeting everyone knows this you know like people are included and everyone is at the meeting and so we don't get anywhere what are some of the things that people who are looking into being more inclusive in their cross functional collaboration should be aware of so they don't make the mistakes that perhaps you have seen yeah yeah that's a, again um, amazing question and i've seen this as well too many people in a meeting too many decision makers they're all bad ideas uh, too many people in a meeting I, I, unless it's a you know one sided conversation where someone is disseminating information there is really a cap of like i don't know less than 10 max for any meeting i don't see that <laughs> i see much larger meetings one principle that i've followed in the past is do you have the right for each cross function each function do you have the right decision maker in the meeting or mm-hmm. the right person 
if yes you don't need anyone above in that in the reporting chain you don't probably don't need anyone below the reporting chain just to make them feel good sometimes at least when i was an engineer early on i used to love i had so few meetings that i used to love being part of meetings and now i i just try to reduce as many <laughs> meetings i want to be part of as few meetings as possible so it's a dramatic change going from too few meetings to too many and sometimes meetings bloat because people think that being part of the not being part of that meeting means you're also out of the conversation that's not mm-hmm. always the case if you have the right communication channel you know you have the right leader present and they figure out the right piece of information that you should know and give it to you like maybe your manager or maybe your tech lead ic if there if you as a an individual is represented well and by the at the right level of granularity you don't need to be part of that meeting so having key representation from each function allows us to because there are only like less than 10 xfns any functional pillars anyway right so you're by definition you're limiting the team meetings to less than 10 maybe less than 5 even so again to summarize a having the decision the right decision makers at the lowest level like whoever can make the right decision at the lowest level being present is good enough you don't need the entire reporting chain present that reduces unnecessary bloat in the meeting having every xfn represented so it's inclusive and making sure that there's a clear flow of communication from those who were present at these decision making forums and those who were not allows for everyone to feel like they know everything there's nothing they missed out and finally as i have experienced in my entire career grass is always greener on the other side at some point of time i love to be part of every meeting over time i've found that my 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 time on this earth is limited I don't want to spend 30 minutes 45 minutes 1 hour on a meeting that I regret being part of because I was not neither here nor there I wasn't even able to build anything during that time I wasn't being able to fully concentrate because I wasn't an active participant because I was not You're not an addition Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. so then valuing your own time allows you to not insist on being part of every meeting and that also helps keep these decision making forums and meetings lean and effective Thank you. And it sounds like trusting the communication channels and trusting your your teammates is also a very big one so that people don't want to be in all the meetings because they know I'm going to hear about this if I need to hear exactly. about it. Exactly. So that's where the assuming good intent is important like if if hopefully we are part of organization where everyone has good intent and everyone no one is hiding I have heard of cultures where someone hides information because it's to their advantage but that's it happens you know more often than we want to believe but hopefully you're not part of a company where that is that's a bigger problem to solve than just right. being part of meetings but thank you i i think we could go on forever honestly i really have been enjoying this conversation we have touched on a bunch of different things when it comes to managing cross functional teams my biggest takeaway is the empathy session hands down i i love that i'm going to encourage it facilitate it whatever whatever it might take of course if people want to be part of a conversation like that and they you should just want bring to be in part good of a food uh, like you know, beer or whatever right, right. Yeah. yeah pizza and beer yeah. so we have covered a lot of ground is there anything else that you would like to add so that our listeners hear about it or know about it or something that is important for you to to share in this yeah. context Yeah it's it is like I think the one takeaway as I think as I was talking through this I think the one takeaway is try your best to learn more about what others do around you uh, I mean the biggest problem I feel pe- when people have conflicts within orgs across XFN is when 
there is not a transparent flow of information and understanding and and again i'm going to use the word empathy among the right people so there are more number of cases where a conflict happens because of mis- misunderstanding and mis- uh, lack of information flow than of malintent so i've always found that to be true i've always started like i've been like oh, i really dislike this person i really dislike what they're doing and then i spend some time with them and i just my mind it's so common for me to be wrong about somebody else that i'm not very close to so getting close to people understanding what they do will really help you become a better leader over time because that's that's the difference between people who just harbor hard feelings versus those who overcome that and bridge the right. barriers right and i think that speaks to your character when you say you are someone who overcomes their own decisions about situations or people because that's that's like one of the hardest things you know i think a lot of leaders are quick to judge just because it has helped them in the past but some of the best leaders are also quick to let go of their judgments if the the data indicates differently yeah and i'm i'm like a, i'm quick to judge all the time but i'm just self aware that i am quick to judge so then i correct myself <laughs> right. like there's no way like there's this unconscious bias we all have and but the good important thing is to n- be able to be aware of it and sort of correct for it like I, i cannot claim that i'm not quick to judge at times right but then i i know hey am i being i mean asking myself that question helps right thank you Thank you so much for this conversation. Ritendra Datta was my guest today. And before we go, I would like to ask you, where can our listeners follow your work? I write sometimes on LinkedIn. I have mm-hmm. 32 followers on Twitter, so no no point going there. <laughs> nice. But LinkedIn is Or maybe better. after this. Maybe after maybe this. After maybe this. after this. Maybe after this. But you can just search for my full name on LinkedIn. You should be able to see some of my... I've written some long posts there about, you know, engineering leadership and... you right. know generally being human so yeah you can find some of my stuff then i'll keep writing from time to time on linkedin because i find like i've i've the right audience there for what i have to say thank you thank you for sharing that and i hope we can we can uh, have another conversation sometime because this was really fun there's listeners and watchers i am carolina tot today my guest was ritenda datta and we talked about managing cross functional teams to collaboration and i think this gave us a lot to think about and to to try out for our teams so thank you very much for joining level up engineering thank you carolina i really enjoyed my conversation you asked some really amazing questions and it made me think on the spot thank you thank you so much thanks for joining us and everyone else i hope to see you next time thanks for staying with us this was the level up engineering podcast by apex lab Check them out at apexlab.io and don't forget to subscribe to our channel, rate our content and share your thoughts on this episode. See you next time. See you next time.